This is Joan Halsman, and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we take time in our flagship enterprise to look at the new era that we live in and its amazing contours and how one can benefit from understanding it. And today we're going to take a very big picture view. We're going to, the, our thesis is the era of globalization is definitively over. Welcome to the age of insecurity. And we're going to talk in detail about what this means. One of my favorite ways of communicating with our community is to sometimes just think out loud with you. There are times I prepare a lot of notes for these talks, go over the notes in a very rigorous, professional way. And there are times it's much more like freeform jazz. I sit back and I think out loud. And these are often both the best and the worst of the podcasts. And I'm doing that today, hoping this is the best, because we're going to think in a jazz-like manner about the big issue, about the new historical age we find ourselves in. And let's look at the processes that made globalization work. In the past, we've looked at the shibboleths, the belief system that underlay the age of globalization. Now let's look at the processes that made this run. To simplify, as one has to about grand historical ages, the age of globalization, which lasted approximately a generation, 20, 25 years, worked brilliantly because within it there was a system, and the system united the great economic powers of the world. For instance, you had the German economic model, which was dependent on using low Russian energy prices to make money by then manufacturing with this energy high-end products to sell to the Chinese. The Chinese, on the other hand, made a fortune selling low-end merchandise to the rest of the world, though eight t-shirts for a dollar to the rest of the world. And that's how they made their money, by dominating the manufacturing market of the globe, by making things of sufficient quality, though on the low end, and just swamping markets with them. The United States made a fortune by having low interest rates during this period of time. This was the time of QE. This was the time of keeping interest rates low enough that the United States could use this extra uh, impetus to make a fortune. And then we have the Russians who made a fortune selling low-cost energy to the rest of the world. So everybody benefited out of the system. The Chinese sold low-end products to the world. The Russians and others, like the Saudis, made money out of energy. The Germans used the cheap energy to sell high-end products to the rest of the world. And the United States benefited by historically subterranean interest rates and used this to power their economy. And this model worked rather brilliantly for a long period of time. It is now irretrievably broken. And let's have a look at what's happened. Well, three basic things have happened. There are two external things beyond it all, and one internal thing, ideationally. One of the things that you can see is that the globalization age was predicated on these three basic notions of thinking. One that everything was economic in the end, that all problems would be solved and economic rationality was above everything. I remember hearing banker after banker that I deal with talk to me in what struck me as a very oddly Marxist way, that in the end they thought the economic lever of power trumped all other levers of power. And give you an example, they'd say Russia will never go to war over Ukraine because it would stand to lose an awful lot of energy money. The United States and China will always sort out their differences and their, and, and their com competitive problems. I still have, there's still useful idiots out there in my profession saying this uh, because 
in the end, the economic imperative to make money trumps any other nationalistic or geostrategic thinking that they have. Tell that to the people of Taiwan. It's just not true. Tell that to the people of Ukraine. It's just not true. That after a period of time, it became clear there are other motives. And yes, the economic motive of power to do things is one of the great drivers of the world. Certainly one of the top two or three. But so is nationalism. So is ideology. So is pride in country. So is using military power to achieve your ends. These things have never gone away. And in overrating the economic model and the economic motive, people who supported globalization didn't see its end coming by these other motives that we live in this new age of insecurity where there are many drivers of power as well as the economic one. The second point that, that was made all the time was in this system that we will always have non-inflation. Interest rates can be kept low. And if we've seen, and I've talked about and lauded, the heroic efforts of Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan to keep the world in this way, that for two generations at great cost and at great political courage, they kept the beast of inflation chained to a cage. But Frankenstein's monster was far from dead. Central banks took their eye off the ball after COVID when they didn't count on the world's economy bouncing back as quickly as they did, and they overflooded the market. Too many dollars chasing too few goods leads to inflation. This is a microeconomic problem. And then in the case of the Biden administration, they spent money like drunken sailors and poured gasoline onto an already raging fire that the policymakers and fiscal policy made things worse as well. So counting on economics to drive everything and then counting on perpetually, eternally low rates of inflation went out the window. And then third, they didn't count on the economic rot from within, that, that having gotten the Iraq war wrong, having gotten the global elite Afghanistan wrong, having talked to death the issue and missed the 2008 economic crisis, the banking crisis, having missed that, having botched COVID, as we've seen in the Fauciism of the time, our elite is discredited. And like most elites, it's not self-aware and can't figure out why. I go to meeting after meeting. I love the Aspen meetings because so many of the people there are offended that people are questioning them without looking at their highly questionable records. And so that elite began, that was all in favor of globalization, began to lose elections, began to be discredited. And so there was a political imperative from both the left and the right of populism that the, this political agreement among the developed world and many in the developing world was beginning to fray politically because their record simply hasn't been very good. And so they begin to lose. And so this political agreement across the board, tacit though it was in many ways, if you think Davos, man, and Davos being the kind of capital of this place. I'm very fond of Davos because it's where I met Sarah, but frankly, as an, as an image for an out of touch, unaccountable, and frankly, subpar mediocre elite, there are reasons that the populace have made gains. And the basic reason is the narrative they're telling, at least the first part, is true. The elected elites of the world have failed. They failed in the global economic crisis of 2008. Not one banker went to jail, um, and yet we had to bail them out and, and to the tune of catastrophic billions. COVID was botched. Afghanistan was botched. Iraq was botched. And there's no wonder that people are beginning to question if they're wrong about all this, are they wrong about the central economic tenets of the time? And populism of both the left and the right has sprung up as a result. The, the first part of the narrative, the story they're telling is true. The elite isn't very good. 
and thinks it's wonderful. And about that, everyone from Donald Trump to Bolsonaro to Marine Le Pen um, is right. So these three kind of shibboleths have all gone by the wayside. Economic power isn't the only force in the world. Political risk matters too, as we've seen, and was underrated. Two, um, we've seen inflation will not be kept perpetually at bay, that, that some very mediocre central bankers took their eye off the ball and now we're all paying the price. And three, populism spread because of the discrediting of the elite. And all this has really undermined uh, ideationally the globalization process. Um, if you go further and look at how this process has been undermined, it's interesting. Look at the things that we said that united the world. Cheap energy was one of the things. And it, of course, affected the fact that you could then have low interest rates because energy costs were low. You didn't have to raise interest rates and could keep them at subterranean levels. This helped the Russians sell in volume with the Saudis, although they had many years where they would have liked the price of oil to be higher. They made up for it in volume. This allowed the United States to keep interest rates low, and this allowed the Germans' economic model to thrive, that they could use cheap energy as a competitive edge to then make product uh, through high-end manufacturing that they would then sell primarily to China. Think machine tools, think cars, think petrochemicals that they would sell to China. Without cheap energy, this model falls apart. So when, when OPEC Plus's price is 40 to $60, this works beautifully. When it's now sitting at around $100, it doesn't. The model is just definitively broken. And as Tom Wolfe, our great novelist, said, you can't go home. And uh, you can't go back to this. And without this model, all three of the basic poles of power, Europe, China, and the United States, the models that they used in globalization are definitively broken. And as a result, the era is definitively over. So on energy prices alone, you can make the point. Further, you make the point that in China, and, you, and I don't want to overdo this, it's not that the global just-in-time supply chain is going to go away. It's that it's going to have other competitors. It's going to fray at the edges. The U.S.-China ch trade relationship will continue to be central to the world, come what may. This will remain the case. But there will be other efforts to hedge, which is a good business strategy as supply chains break down and as Sino-American tensions grow. And we can see that they might indeed go to war in spite of the economic calamity that befalls us. We simply don't know. But there's too much insecurity not to hedge, plus the bottlenecks in the supply chains. The problem with just-in-time Manufacturing is the first part of that sentence, just in time. Everything must work in an intricate manner, and when supply chains begin to break down, they don't. And so the whole system develops bottlenecks, there are shortages, there are increases in price, and that's the world we're experiencing now. Welcome again to the age of insecurity that's dawning. So this is happening as well. Um, and you see th this going on, that if this is the case, you're going to have onshoring, more and more countries and significant economic powers are going to do more internally. The United States just passed a bill giving $52 billion in subsidies to high-end chip makers, semiconductor chip makers, because we don't want to be dependent solely on Taiwan for this because of the political risk involved in being solely dependent on Taiwan for this. And as a result of this, the United States is now doing that. Now, industrial policy is not the most economically efficient, and prices in the new era will be trend level higher because of this. The United States doesn't care. It wants a secure supply of chips that is not, you know, at the mercy 
of who invades Taiwan on any given day. And so this, this is a major change. It's the people onshore, people do regional trade more and more. China is looking in its own backyard, both for geostrategic reasons to dominate the Indo-Pacific, but also because these are its major trading partners. Europe is doing the same. Germany would be a basket case if it didn't have a trade surplus with Southern Europe. That's where it does an awful lot of its business. And for the United States, the same is true for NAFTA with Canada and Mexico, two of America's three greatest trading partners and where they invest. And so these economic regional blocks are forming as well as onshoring and diversification. And for all these reasons, it's not that the one global supply chain ceases to exist or ceases to matter. It's that it frays at the edges and these other things matter as well. And when that's the case, you have the end of one era and the beginning of the other. You have this multiplicity of economic models out there because you're hedging, not being able to depend on the one globalized model anymore as it's broken down for all the reasons that we've laid out here. So that hurts the Chinese who are used to selling T-shirts for a dollar to everybody. Now you might say, well, I'll buy one T-shirt for $3 from Mexico, but I can count on it getting here um, if you're an American. And so this will eat in to China's export-driven model, which has been the envy of the world for the last generation. That imperils that model. For Germany and Europe, it's much more direct. What imperils the European model is there's no more cheap energy. And there's no sign of that coming back. It isn't just the immediate crisis that the Russians turning off the taps at Nord Stream 1. It's that they don't have, and this is the, the people who did this, who are the foreign policy elite of Europe, should be fired to a man. I love the German response to this. Who knew? Who knew this was going on? It's not the fault of Schroeder and Steinmeier and Merkel at all. Who knew? No one could foresee this. I foresaw this. For 20 years, I've been telling the Germans to diversify supply, pay a little bit more for Norwegian, Algerian, and American and Qatari energy so you're not in the pockets of the Russians. To be told, in a good era of globalization way, shut up, it's cheaper to buy Russian oil and gas and there is no political risk. That was the bet. doesn't matter where we get anything from. It matters what is the most economically rational, cheapest price. And this, of course, has been proven cataclysmically wrong. So to say who knew is just covering the tracks of, of a bunch of, and inept isn't kind to them, moronic, self-harming people who didn't develop an energy policy over 20 years. Until weeks before the invasion, the Germans were all for doubling down on their suicide and installing Nord Stream 2. They didn't veer to avoid the cliff. They jumped straight off it. And they should be held accountable. Everyone who did this should be out on their ear, including now President Steinmeier. Only in Europe do you fail up to this extent. President Steinmeier ought to be out in his ear. Merkel is the Stanley Baldwin of the story, and historians ought to do this. People who said she was wonderful, like Ian Bremmer in Eurasia, oughtn't to be hired by the rest of you, and you should get your heads examined, because she wasn't wonderful. She was terrible. And she's left Germany and Europe in a terrible, terrible position. Because without cheap energy, and that's not coming back, even if they do scramble and even if they do put in terminals in the north of Germany that can take American liquefied natural gas that comes from fracking, which they hate, even if they do this, it's going to take time. There's going to be a huge spike in prices and there will be uncertainty. They need now to throw out the people who did what was wrong, 
hold them accountable, see what went wrong, and more positively and proactively develop an energy policy that will see them through this new age of insecurity where they do diversify. Yes, they're going to have to pay more. The old model is broken and over. But if they pay more and take on Qatari, Algerian, Norwegian, and American natural gas over time and move away from Russian, they've got themselves a chance. So that's important. But that old model isn't coming back. And they bet on the wrong horse. And it's just that simple. They made a colossal maybe one of the worst I've ever seen political risk decisions out there, and they're now paying the piper. And it's going to get very cold as energy prices go up. And this idea that you can cap this without anyone hurting, this is going back to COVID. In COVID, we were paid not to work. Now we're paid not to pay our energy bills. Who's paying for this? We all are. The state in Europe is, which will grow ever larger, have to tax ever higher. You know, the debt's going to get out of control, stifling the tiny shrivel of growth there is here. What a loser in the long term for a policy. For all these reasons, the age of globalization is definitively over. The Germans can no longer use cheap energy to manufacture high-end stuff for China. The Chinese can't use the global supply chain to sell low-end stuff to the rest of the world. The Americans can no longer count on non-existent inflation to keep interest rates at a subterranean level, which helps subsidize and fuel their growth. And the result is we are going to have to find new economic models in the age of insecurity to move ahead. The first thing to do is have a post-mortem about what led to the end of the old order, the era of globalization, which is what I'm doing. This is the post-mortem. For globalization. Now we need to move on and, you, and map the contours of the age of insecurity, and I'll be doing that in future episodes. Thanks very much. I enjoyed thinking with you aloud as my coffee sits in front of me, my espresso. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70, which is a pittance a year, to get this unique, up-to-the-minute, and cutting-edge political risk analysis, which makes sense of the confusing yet beguiling world we live in because there are an awful lot of opportunities out there as well as problems. And we'll talk more and more positively about them as we go along. Thanks very much.